Hello, and welcome to this very special episode of Words That Burn, the podcast taking a closer look at poetry. It's nearly Halloween, which means it's time for the podcast tradition of the Halloween special. This year, I'll be taking a look at three different poets and their sometimes sinister, quite often clever, approaches to the supernatural and the eerie. We'll start with Anne Sexton's seminal work, Her Kind, a poem that invokes the witch hunts of old to reveal the still too common persecution of women today. From there, we'll hear the downright unnerving words of Stephen Crane in his poem, In the Desert a poesque wrestling with the self that will have you leaving the lights on for as long as possible. Finally, we'll finish with Jessica Trainer's poem, The Witch's Hex, An Enemy, a collective Shakespearean curse to be used by communities. Each poem is unique in its treatment, but at the same time, their common thread is that they leave you uneasy in the dark on an October's night. So without further ado, let's begin. Here is Anne Sexton's Her Kind. I have gone out a possessed witch, haunting the black air braver at night. Dreaming evil, I have done my hitch over the plain houses light by light. Lonely thing, twelve-fingered out of mind. A woman like that is not a woman quite. I have been her kind. I have found the warm caves in the woods, filled them with skillets, carvings, shelves, closets, silks, innumerable goods, fixed the suppers for the worms and the elves, whining, rearranging the disaligned. A woman like that is misunderstood. I have been her kind. I have ridden in your cart, driver, waved my nude arms at villages going by, learning the last bright roots survivor, where your flames still bite my thigh, and my ribs crack where your wheels wind. A woman like that is not ashamed to die. I have been her kind. This poem became Anne Sexton's go-to at readings. This was the first poem she always read. Much like the theatrical language throughout, she would go to great lengths to invoke a sense of drama at each recital, frequently dressing up in full costume to accompany it. Sexton was, in every sense, a confessional poet, a poet who infuses their work with sometimes overwhelming biographical detail. Her work frequently dealt with what she herself was going through. And often for Anne Sexton, that was quite a lot. Plagued by mental health issues throughout her life, she was in and out of psychotherapy for decades. It was a therapist who first suggested she take up writing. The difficult experiences she went through informed both her poetry and her perspective on life. Anne Sexton was a poet of the 1960s and a contemporary of Sylvia Plath. Prior to poetry, she was a model and a housewife. These many careers led to women, particularly the role of women in society, becoming Sexton's central theme. 
In this poem, she invokes the imagery of the Salem witch trials, fitting as she herself was from Massachusetts. She does this to examine the ways in which women are portrayed both by the patriarchy and sometimes by themselves. This poem is particularly preoccupied with the various aspects of women, the many hats they wear, if you'll excuse the pun, and how mercurial they can be. Each of the three stanzas focuses on one of those aspects. In the first stanza, she is the pure embodiment of a witch. Brazen, careless, wanton, regular desires are given a sinister edge. What should be a young woman out socializing is now something haunting the black air and dreaming evil. The stanza is peppered with references to real witch folklore six fingers on each hand, making her twelve-fingered. To me, the reason this folklore is used is as a literal marking out of the other, that is to say, someone who stands outside of regular society. The speaker in this poem is not a woman who conforms to the strict standards of 1950s or 1960s America. Not quite a woman, as the poem says. There is a paradox here, because at the same time, she recognizes that she is a lonely thing. There are some hard truths here, because they realize at the same time that they are a lonely thing. Despite that, the stanza ends with the famous line, I have been her kind. For me, it is a recognition of the community cloaked in this statement of otherness. The speaker recognizes that there are many women in her position. The second stanza uses the aspect of the housewife, but gives it a brand new dimension by speaking of it in typically Halloween-esque and witchy imagery. It speaks of how the witch has found the warm caves in the woods, filled them with skillets, carvings, shelves, closets, silks, and innumerable goods, fixed the suppers for the worms and the elves. The warm cave is simply a kitchen. The old-fashioned language of skillets and carving regular shelves are just cooking equipment. The closet silks and innumerable goods are the presents and domestic objects that housewives at that time surrounded themselves with. Once more, these ordinary things are given a supernatural edge. There is a dark undercurrent to everyday objects just like there are dark undercurrents to women. They can be more than one thing, both a caring mother and a witch. The poem itself seems to be Sexton's interrogation of, if not more simply, a dialogue with herself. She is hoping to reconcile with the various forms of herself. The speaker states, a woman like that is misunderstood. I have taken that to mean that housewives and mothers are often reduced to simple and content roles, as though they want nothing more than a lovely home life. This is what is misunderstood. The men of this society think that as long as women have their silks and skillets, that women will want nothing more. In reality, these women want so much more. This reading is backed by the final refrain once more, I have been her kind. 
A lot of analysis has been done, hoping to discover exactly what was meant by this, and it has been found that the line is a subtle parody of the marketing rhetoric used by 1950s advertising. These ads would frequently implore husbands to recognize the kind of woman their wives were. They would go on to list a shallow collection of virtues that those wives might have had and how their products reinforced those characteristics. Patronizing to say the least, downright insulting if we're honest. Sexton has twisted it here, creating a much more sinister community of outsiders and witches. They are her kind. The last stanza is easily the darkest. It utilizes the witch hunt imagery of old, as I previously mentioned, but to an uncomfortable degree, in the hopes that it will make the reader or listener uncomfortable. It is done to great effect. We feel the humiliation of a woman stripped naked in a cage on a cart. And we feel the pain of flames that still bite my thigh. Both these images represent the punishments used against women accused of witchcraft from much darker times. Some would argue much less enlightened times. But this poem does not relegate such punishments to the past. Yes, there are no more cages, and perhaps women are not burned at the stake. But in the contemporary society of Anne Sexton, the persecution of women is alive and well. There is a real atmosphere of pressure, as Sexton describes ribs cracking as the driver's wheels wind on. This golden society of progress and modernity in the 50s and 60s is breaking their women. Forced conformity to their roles is taking its toll. For me, in referencing the cage, the waving arms, the bright roots and survivor status, Sexton is referring to her own ordeals with mental health and treatment. Her struggles in that regard are well documented and often served as a basis for her work. She openly denounced the stigma often associated with women who had overcome such things. Cries and accusations of hysteria were not such a distant memory for many women. And once again, the refrain, I have been her kind, reinforces that community of shunned or branded women. Her Kind is a poem of deep resonance and very personal content. Sexton uses the supernatural to create a shifting, slinking examination of both herself, women, and how society treats them. From one abstract self-examination to another. This time, perhaps even more chilling in an indirect way. Here is Stephen Crane's In the Desert. In the desert, I saw a creature, naked, bestial, who, squatting upon the ground, held his heart in his hands and ate of it. I said, is it good, friend? It is bitter, bitter, he answered. But I like it because it is bitter and because it is my heart.
This disturbing and brief poem invokes the work of Edgar Allan Poe in its unnerving gothic quality. In some ways it is typical of the type of work that Stephen Crane wrote. Crane is an often overlooked American writer of the 1800s, one who was the subject of a massive resurgence of interest in the 20th century. Modernists took note of his work and critics of the 50s and 60s often stated that he had leapfrogged modernism altogether and ended up firmly in the territory of postmodernism. As a poem, this one is brief and evocative. It was claimed by one critic that Crane wrote poems for the mind as opposed to the heart, ones that linger long after they've been read. It's a bit ironic considering that the central creature here is devouring its own heart. Calling this a poem would probably not gain us any favour with Crane himself, who insisted that his poetry be called lines. He did not believe that poetry was some aesthetic practice, but rather that it was an important tool for self-examination and pursuing the truth. When stating the intent behind his lines, he claimed it was to give my ideas of life as a whole as I know it. His lines were his declarations of how he experienced the world. There is an element of Khalil Gibran in the almost mystic dialogue between the two subjects of this poem. Dialogues are a common tool in Crane's writing arsenal to interrogate some aspect of himself, not unlike Sexton in the previous poem. Though the physical actions in the poem may be described as macabre, though the physical actions in the poem may be described as macabre, using this insight of interrogation helps us to understand some of the emotional subject at play. The tone of the poem is quite matter-of-fact for a subject matter that is bordering on horrific. The existential nightmarish quality of the lines is tempered somewhat by a reporter's tone. This is no great shock as Crane himself worked as a war correspondent during his lifetime. In my own personal reading, I feel that this profession is key to understanding the poem. I believe the creature devouring the heart is either eating away at sentiment, a softness, one not befitting a war reporter. On the other hand, the reading that I think is more plausible, because the word bitter is repeated so often, is that Crane is trying to find some way back from his experience at war. Witnessing the horrors of conflict must have hardened his heart significantly. As journalist Adam Gopnik says, Crane's writing has the eerie, hyper-intense credibility of remembered trauma. One need only read one of his field dispatches to understand why such bitterness would reside in his heart. Here is one such excerpt. The men dropped here and there like bundles. The captain of the youth's company had been killed in an early part of the action. His body lay stretched out in the position of a tired man resting. But upon his face there was an astonished, sorrowful look, as if he thought some friend had done him an ill turn. The babbling man was grazed by a shot that made the blood stream widely down his face. He clapped both hands to his head 
Oh, he said and ran. Another grunted suddenly as if he had been struck by a club in the stomach. He sat down and gazed ruefully. In his eyes there was mute, indefinite reproach. Farther up the line, a man standing behind a tree had had his knee joint splintered by a ball. Immediately he dropped his rifle and gripped the tree with both arms, and there he remained clinging desperately and crying for assistance that he might withdraw his hold upon the tree. This is harrowing, even with its matter-of-fact tone. Perhaps the naked, bestial creature is all Crane feels is left of him after these experiences. The devouring of its own bitter heart, a desperate attempt to remedy that. There is a strange hint of denial or paradox in its enjoyment of its strange meal. I like it because it is bitter. How could anyone enjoy a bitter taste like that? This creature seems resigned to its fate as a tired, jaded thing. More animal than man. Perhaps the lions are Crane's fear that he might permanently be left the same. From Witches to Creatures and Back Again, the next poem is from Dublin poet Jessica Trainer. It once again invokes a strange community, but this time not for inclusion, but to enact revenge. This is The Witch's Hex and Enemy. May the jelly in your eyes be eaten by eels. May your guts grow fins and escape out of your arse. May the springs of your bed slice your back like rusted knives. May boils fester your balls, may sleep desert you, may you not have one second of ease. May the closing of an eyelid be a scalpel to your retina. May your enemies shit on your grave until it becomes a blackened monument. This we wish on you, with the power of our mothers, our grandmothers, all our sainted aunts. God help you and with the uninformed id of our gestating daughters, whose vision is nightmare, whose magic is cellular, whose name is Splinter, Shank, Scroll. This rousing theatrical poem has all the hallmarks of a Shakespearean soliloquy and would not be out of place coming out of the mouths of the weird sisters in Macbeth. Of the three poems we've heard in this episode, it is arguably the most Halloween-y, at least in the beginning. The theatrical, macabre tone is a style that is very familiar to Trainer. In fact, she stated in an interview why that is. Not because I consider myself a particularly morbid person, but because of the imaginative scope lifting that veil can offer like a Victorian table tapper, I'm more interested in creating a theatrical spectacle than imagining that I have a genuine connection with the other side. This table tapping that she references works very well for invoking a sense of atmosphere. It also lets us know that the magic being used here 
is not any genuine belief in the mystical, but rather a representation of a strong sense of emotion and having been done wrong by others. The more we read, the more this theatrical tone dissipates. The more we read, the more severe the punishments become. It changes from the almost farcical tone of eels eating your eyeball jelly, so abstract in terms of the archaic language used that the violence doesn't quite land, to the much more wince-inducing and somehow contemporary, may your eyelids become a scalpel to your retinas. The words become increasingly dangerous, shifting to something ever more aggressive. This supreme hex forms two columns in the poem. The column on the left constantly repeats may, an exceptionally polite form of wishing malice and awful things upon another and the targeted body part, whilst the right column delivers the wrath of the witches. This deliberate spacing causes an ominous chanting rhythm to echo up from the depths of the poem. We feel a truly communal aspect to this hex. It becomes a war cry. Academic Animal Hall has stated that there is a tone of confident feminist defiance that reverberates through contemporary Irish women's poetry and cites Trainer's work as a core example. These witches refute the world of the patriarchy, perhaps certain men in particular. We know that men are the object of the hex, from the mention of festering balls. More important than the target, perhaps, is the fact that this magic is cross-generational. The final stanza leaves the dual column format and becomes a free verse stanza. Here the source of the magic is revealed. It is the women in a family, mothers, grandmothers, sainted aunties. The use of words like this, combined with another well-worn mantra, God help you, give these final lines a distinctly Irish tone. Jessica Trainer has spoken at length about how many of the witches in this poem are inspired by women she saw growing up women who were filled with bitterness because of everything they had to put up with in unhappy marriages, in their interactions with men in Irish society. She goes on to talk about how misogyny is one of the things that comes to define a witch. Here is another quote from an interview where she makes clear exactly what a witch is. That's what a witch is. A powerful woman in invisible shackles who has created a dark matter reactor at her core. Misogyny makes harridans of women and bullies of men. As a woman, sometimes the witches are there to save you and other times they want to drag you down with them. Their power is seductive and they are great crack to be around, but it's not an identity anyone would choose. It is interesting that the poet refers to witchcraft as a double-edged sword, there to save you or drag you down. In those final lines, there is a distinct sense that perhaps this fate of wrath and fury may be inescapable and not something that anybody actually wants. This generational hex 
may harness power from all, but it may not be willingly given. It is taken from even those not yet born, and with the uninformed id of our gestating daughters, whose vision is nightmare, whose magic is cellular, whose name is Splinter, Shank, Scroll. There is very little positive here. Whose vision is nightmare seems to echo the idea Trainer expressed that a life of magic is not an identity anyone would choose. Perhaps Trainer hopes that future generations will not have to carry such rage in them, that misogyny will not be such a prominent factor in their lives. She hopes that future generations will never have to call on such hexes. Both of our witch poems this evening used almost playful Halloween imagery as a vehicle for much more sinister goings-on, whilst the other poet employed horror as a healing tool. It can be easy to relegate Halloween to the realm of a kitsch festival every year, but to do so would be a mistake. Here in Ireland, Halloween, or Ihahauna, was an important festival for both remembering the dead and recognizing the beginning of the darker half of the year. The poems we've heard here do exactly the same thing. They confront the dark in the hope that insight will come from it. And I hope that in listening this evening, you gain some insight too. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider reviewing the podcast wherever you listen. Better yet, send it directly to a friend you think might enjoy it too. I'd like to give a special thank you to Jessica Trainer for providing me with her collection, The Quick, and allowing me to use her poem in this episode. I strongly recommend that you check out the whole collection, as there is a full sequence of witch poems in it. They are a joy to read. You can find a link to the show notes for this episode on Substack below in the description. Thank you once again for spending your time with me, and I hope you have a very happy Halloween. <laughs>